This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. to the Voice of Leadership, and thank you for joining me today. We have a very exciting subject, which is about with liberty and justice for all. And currently, it's right about the time of the 4th of July, or Independence Day in the United States. And I have a very special guest with me today to have a great dialogue and conversation together about what are the implications of liberty and justice for all in the workplace. So let me tell you a little bit about my guest. My guest is Dr. Marvin A. McMickle, who was born in Chicago, Illinois. He holds a BA degree in philosophy from Aurora University in Illinois a Master of Divinity degree from Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and a Doctor of Ministry degree from Princeton Theological Seminary in Princeton, New Jersey. In addition, he did two years of graduate study at Columbia University in New York. Dr. McMickle also holds the following honorary doctorates, Doctor of Divinity from Aurora University, his alma mater, Doctor of Philosophy from Case Western Reserve, University in Cleveland, Ohio, and Doctor of Humane Letters by Payne Theological Seminary in Wilberforce, Ohio. He was ordained in the Christian ministry in 1973 at Abyssinian Baptist Church of New York City, where he also served on the pastoral staff. Other pastorates include St. Paul Baptist Church of Montclair, New Jersey, and Antioch Baptist Church in Cleveland, Ohio. While at Antioch Baptist, he led the church in establishing a ministry for people infected with or affected by HIV AIDS. This ministry was the first of its kind in the entire country. The church also instituted a community tithing initiative where the church tithed 10% of its annual budget to various community programs and agencies. Dr. McMichael's academic post includes serving as 12th president of Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School, member of the board of trustees of Cleveland State University, professor of homiletics at Ashland Theological Seminary, visiting professor of preaching at Yale University Divinity School, and adjunct instructor at Princeton, New Brunswick, and New York Theological Seminaries. As a community leader, Dr. McMichael also served as president of the Cleveland NAACP and Urban League, and president of the Shaker Heights Board of Education. He's an active member of the Progressive National Convention, American Baptist Churches USA, and is a member of the Martin Luther King Jr. International Board of Preachers at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. He also holds several pastor emeritus, professor emeritus, and interim pastor positions. 
Dr. McMichael has been married to his wife, Peggy, since 1975. They have one son, Aaron, who resides in New York City with his wife and two daughters. So, Pastor McMichael, I am so delighted to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me. I, I very much appreciate the invitation to come. I know it came by way of a mutual friend of ours, Rabbi Daniel Roberts, who spent a lot of time in the Cleveland area, has now moved into Colorado. But I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation and for the very generous introduction. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really so happy that you're here. You have so much experience and you're the perfect person with whom I can have this dialogue about with liberty and justice for all. So let me start with the questions. My first question to you, Dr. McMichael, is this. Your career has spanned almost half a century at this point, and it has included many diverse elements. How did you successfully mix the pastoral ministry as well as community leadership? Tell us a little bit about that. You mentioned that I was ordained at Abyssinian Baptist Church in New York City. That yes. happens to be the church where Adam Clayton Powell Sr. and Jr. were pastors. Adam yes. Clayton Powell Jr., of course, was not only a member of the New York City Council, 1941-1942, but he was also a member of the United States House of Representatives for 11 terms. He was then succeeded by Dr. Samuel Proctor, who had been president of the Virginia Union University in Richmond, North Carolina A&T University in Greensboro. Dr. Proctor said to me and to all the ministers on the staff at that time, what Benjamin Elijah Mays had said to him, I need you to be a 40 year man. I said, well, what is a 40 year man? He said, it's a person who devotes his career to both the church and society over a stretch of at least 40 years. In other words, don't start and stop. Don't jump in and jump out. Uh, don't try and fail. Instead of that, be a 40-year man. I've tried to be involved in education. I've tried to be involved in civil rights. I've tried to be involved in pastoral ministry. I've tried to be involved as an author. I've written 17 books. The 18th one was just sent to the publisher. But if you look at the people who've touched my life, Martin Luther King Jr., Samuel DeWitt Proctor, James Cone, the black theologian, a little of each of them is in me. And a little of what they did is what I've tried to do. And I promised Dr. Proctor 40 years. As it happens, he's getting 50. Yes, but, how uh, about that? Yeah, he mentored me in that direction. It looks to me like it's going to end up being more than 50. Actually, <laughs> you still have a lot of energy. You're still going strong. Yeah, I know you're retired. Yeah. But, I'm the, but not from work. Yeah, no, from work. You're, you're, and not from life and yeah. not from making a difference. Exactly. <laughs> that I do know. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up Abyssinian Baptist Church. I have been there. I've also attended a wedding there, and I know it's an historic yeah. a monument, an historic church. Yeah. Great people from the African-American community have been a part of it over the years. So those who don't know about it should look it up. And whenever you're in New York City, definitely stop by and, and take a look at the church. Between 7th Avenue and Lenox. I mean, right in the heart of Harlem. Yeah. You still remember. That's <laughs> phenomenal. <laughs> the address. 
So this 40 years where you mixing the pastorate and community service was part of the pledge that you took, as you said, to be a 40-year man. And you spent about 24 years as a pastor of Antioch Baptist Church in Cleveland. And I want to ask you, what prompted you there to establish the ministry for those who are infected or affected by HIV AIDS and to also do the 10% tithe to community agencies? What prompted that? Sure. Well, first of all, I was prompted because it became apparent to me that members of Antioch had become infected with HIV AIDS and they became infected in multiple ways. The first one was a stay-at-home wife, long-term member of the church, entirely, totally, and completely faithful to her husband, but it was not reciprocal. Mm. And he brought AIDS home to her from other relationships that he had been maintaining. That was the first case. The second person in the church was married to somebody who, before they got married, had been an IV drug user, and uh, they got married. Now, he was through with the drug use by the time they got married, but neither one of them was aware of how long HIV can lie dormant in one's uh, blood system. It's up to six years. And so even though he had gotten away from drug use, he was still within the time frame when it could be passed on. So she gave birth to two twin boys. Both of them were born with HIV and AIDS. And then, you know, there were other persons uh, because of their own lifestyle that contracted it. So it became clear to me that at the time that I discovered this, people were of the opinion that AIDS was a white gay male disease and that only they had to be concerned about it. I now knew that was a fallacy that HIV had already become a disease primarily impacting African-American women and then African-American young people and now African-American seniors. If you look inside the average Black Baptist church, what do you see? African-American women, African-American teens, African-American seniors, and African-American men as well. So I had to respond because I was the pastor of people who were struggling with HIV and AIDS, and I had to help them learn the lessons of how to not contract that disease. I wrote a book called A Time to End the Silence, and it was about how pastors have to become much more outspoken about the fact that HIV and AIDS is in their churches, among their membership, perhaps on their staff, and they owe it to themselves and to their church to call this attention to this tough issue. The issue of 10% tithing is because I don't think I have the right to ask people to give 10% to the church if the church won't turn around and give 10% to its impacted community. My belief has always been that if a church would simply stake out a one square mile radius from its location and try to lay claim to every social problem that's going on in that one mile wide radius. And then other churches could pick it up from that boundary line and carry it forward. We could impact entire cities with our sense of stewardship and generosity. So we had church meetings, or we had when I was there, and we drew up the list of the institutions or issues that we wanted to invest in. 
the whole church had a chance to contribute what they thought the money should be for on a yearly basis. We made some grants one year at a time, some grants three years at a time, one grant for 10 years to support an agency that was a middle exchange program in a nondescript building, gosh, maybe eight doors down the street that nobody knew was there except me. You know, we gave money every year to domestic shelters for battered women and abandoned children, so things like that. My belief is that the church is at its best when it is serving those that Jesus calls the least of these, those who are the most disadvantaged and those without any other advocacy. And so that's how we got started. The church was very supportive. We had a large church, so we were giving like $200,000 a year away to these uh, external agencies and institutions. And um, it was one of the best things the church could have done. You know, I really appreciate hearing the story about that because what it says is that this whole issue of being of service to people, you really believe in that. In other words, what your congregation was dealing with, what was important to them, that's what the church needed to focus on. And I love the fact that you just didn't say, okay, I'm not going to get involved or put your head in the sand because that would be many pastors that might not choose to support some of those causes that you chose to support. I'm going to say this for your audience sake. If you had told me before this happened that I'd be a pastor that was talking about safe sex practices, I would have told you that's a very unlikely scenario. But once you get into HIV and AIDS, among the things you've got to talk about our safe sex practices and so forth and so on. And so I became very at ease with that. Now here again, if you talk about this square mile radius approach to ministry, it was my hope that other pastors would pick that up and carry it into their arena. They never did. And so almost every church in Cleveland that had a person or an issue, they would just send them all to Antioch. Okay, so we would do 900 to 1,000 AIDS tests a year. We did AIDS tests inside the church building. We made no attempt to hide it. We made no attempt to say, go someplace to a storefront with no name on the front and go in there. No, you came right into the church building. We provided daycare for the parents who had to have daycare while they were being tested. Uh, we had support groups that uh, you know, folks who were dealing with HIV and AIDS or their spouses or their partners to get the latest information on uh, what's happening with AIDS. Now, bear in mind, there is no cure. They've not found any vaccine or anything like that. All there is are treatments and lifestyle changes. And so you had to keep people abreast of what the developments were. And the beauty of this was that we're about a half a block from Cleveland Clinic which is one of the great hospitals in the world. And they were the ones providing the medical support. A nurse from the clinic, we weren't over there doing AIDS tests, you know, well-meaning ushers and well-meaning <laughs> deacons. We had nurses and doctors from the renowned Cleveland Clinic who couldn't wait to get across the street to be a part of this ministry. And we worked with the Greater Cleveland AIDS Task Force, that's the grassroots AIDS group, and the American Red Cross. So this was a real collaborative effort, and that's what gave it such credibility. The medical community said yes. The grassroots community said yes. 
the Red Cross said yes, and the church said yes. And so it was a wonderful partnership. Like I say, 900 to 1,000 AIDS tests a year, support groups. There's something called HIV AIDS Sunday. I think it's the first Sunday in December, and uh, you're supposed to do a service in memory of those who died and in support of those who are alive. And we did that every year as well. You know, I think that what's so amazing about this is that you were, again, facing the actual reality. In other words, if messages need to be taught about safe sex and so on, even though that's not what you thought you might be teaching, maybe you thought you might be yeah. teaching abstinence, but if safe yeah. sex was needed, yeah. that's yeah. what needed to be taught. And so yeah. I like yeah. the practical aspect yeah. of yeah. what yeah. happened there yeah. and what if you're you were not, doing. If you're not going to talk about safe sex practices in the era of HIV and AIDS, then you're of no help. You know, all you can talk about is abstinence. Listen, oh, that's fine if you're 15, 16, 17, 18. Even then, it's unlikely. But people who are 35 and 40, 45 and 50, that's not where they're going to go. So the, the one thing that I can do is say, I don't control your private life. I'm not condoning or condemning anything. All I'm saying to you is we're in the face of an epidemic, and I need to stop this, you know, I guess they would call it today, flatten the curve to get the number of cases down. Now, here's the sad thing from, from my vantage point. The white gay male population in this country flattened that curve in about 10 years. But no sooner had it flattened there than it started taking off in these same three targeted areas. African-American women, African-American young people, teenagers, and African-American seniors. Now, the seniors is interesting because, you know, they think that uh, safe sex is only for birth control. And they're well past the age of birth control, so why bother giving no thought to where has this person that I'm now having a relationship with been for the last five, six, or seven years? And don't you know, they've been somewhere and picked it up and passed it on. So in the black community, this is still a very major problem, but it gets very little attention. Wow. Let's shift our conversation a little bit, because since I know you've been very practical in the things we're talking about so far, I also want to get your practical perspective on some other aspects that are in the news right now. So as you already know, in the current U.S. climate, where there's a continuing problem of racial injustice, and it's just been recently highlighted by so many publicly recorded deaths of black people and particularly at the hands of police officers many businesses in this climate they feel compelled to take some sort of a stand and a number of companies and businesses have actually issued statements in support of diversity equity and inclusion and at the same time most businesses have no idea about where to start what to do next or even how to think about this so what do you believe they should begin thinking about first? Because after all, you've been in the trenches, you've done the practical thing. Where might businesses start to think? I think there are three levels. And thank you so much for a chance to reflect on this. The first thing that they can do is make sure that their management team is diverse. The people who help them decide about advertising, who help them decide about where they're going to set up a store, or where they're going to make their products available. 
to the extent that your management team is homogenous, all white and largely male, there are just going to be some issues and some considerations that will never cross your mind. So who are your executive vice presidents? Who is in charge of your human resources department? Who is in charge of the consideration about health care for all of your workers, so forth and so on? The second place, if it's a large company, is in your boardroom. Here in Cleveland, when I was active as a pastor, most of the corporations that were headquartered in Cleveland had 95% white male board representation. So people who had a different point of view about how corporations should behave were essentially locked out because if you're not at the table, then you're being talked about, but not talked to. And so the second thing they can do is be sure that they are aggressively inviting African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, women to be members of their board of directors. The third thing that they can do is to be sure, in addition to their management staff and in addition to their board staff, that they are good corporate citizens. So when I was the head of the NAACP, we'd have something called the Freedom Fund Dinner every year. And we'd ask a corporation, BP or Standard Oil or Key Bank or something like that, to be the corporate sponsor and to use its influence to leverage other corporations to invest in minority-owned businesses. If a company wants to make a difference in this country and this culture, here are two things you can do. You can support female business enterprises and you can support minority business enterprises, FBE, MBE, where you're trying to get companies to start up. Small business is the backbone of American economic life. So how do you get small businesses, African-American-owned, female-owned, Hispanic-owned, East Asian-owned companies to get a foothold in the marketplace? Share your staff, share your senior level management, send us three or four of your retired executives to help introduce us to who we need to know in order to get contracts and to get an opportunity to participate in the marketplace. Vouch for us by getting to know us. And then, you know, don't send a check once a year to some charitable institution. Help us write our own checks by being aggressive in getting these small businesses up and running. You know, let me interject here because I think you've mentioned several things that are really important. Some activities and actions that companies can take internally in terms of a diverse management team, making sure the boardroom is diverse, and then being good corporate citizens by sponsoring events in the community. And now you're also talking about supporting minority businesses and also female-owned businesses. And here's what I want to ask you. Companies want to know this. What is the advantage of diversity? In other words, why should they be interested in diversity and inclusion? What are the benefits in that? If this was an all-white country in population, I would say, don't worry about it. But if you're in a multicultural society, where your consumer base or your advertising base involves people of various colors, 
various cultures, various language groups, and you want to expand your base. You want to tap into every possible market. You don't know how to reach these people. You'll write some stupid ad about something that you believe is true based upon some silly stereotype, and you'll end up offending more people than you will empowering. Somebody on your management team, somebody on your board, can look at the ads, can look at your investments, you know, where are you banking? Uh, are you sending any of your money to minority-owned banks? Are you hiring any minority-owned firms to maintain your property? This is going to help you expand your market share. It's going to make you a much more valuable entity. And if you're a global company, by the way, if you're trying to do business in the United States and Canada and the Caribbean and Latin America and Europe and Asia, if you want to have a global reach, you've got to have a global face within the life of your decision-making process so that somebody is looking at you before you go public to say, yeah, that's a good idea, or no, you don't want to use this. I mean, look at, look at what Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's have done 120 years later. We just discovered that the image of Aunt Jemima is based upon a racial stereotype. Really? From 1892 until now, you just realize that Uncle Ben is based upon, you know, a racial stereotype. Uh, I think people need to have a broader vision of what the marketplace looks like. You diversify your workforce, you're going to expand your consumer base, and you're going to be a better civic leader because you are leading the way uh, to the extent, for instance, that PepsiCo that owns Quaker Oats that owns Aunt Jemima has made the decision, or, or, or owns Uncle Ben's as well, has made the decision to abandon these stereotypical images and come up with something. What's the new image going to be? And who's going to decide what the face of that company is going to be? How much more do you think Pepsi-Cola sold because they had Ray Charles singing a song about that's the right one, baby, uh-huh. You know, yeah, I mean, just yeah, who you put out is going to tap into a certain marketplace. So, you know, the days of using Perry Como to sing a slogan to the whole country or Dinah Shore singing about Chevrolet, pretty good in 1954, not so good in 2020. Yeah, so you're really saying that even having partnerships with people in a multicultural community allows that business to have more of a presence, a more global footprint, and for others to recommend that business out there. You also said that sometimes companies don't know what they don't know, and left to their own devices, they won't come up with the right answers. And I just want to give an example. I remember I was working one time with an organization that they produced ladies nylons okay so pantyhose that was the main thing that they produced and the senior leadership team was a team a hundred percent all white males and at the time that i was working with them businesses were going into the casual fridays and the casual days and a lot of people had stopped wearing nylons however in the african-american community people were still wearing hosiery and they only had like one color, maybe two, that might work for the average African-American yeah, woman, yeah, yeah. but they wouldn't have thought of it because nobody was at the table, you know, to really say what was going on. 
So well, the same thing is true with the Band-Aids. You know, the Band-Aid company has just come out with multi-shades of Band-Aids. Well, now, I've been wearing Band-Aids that didn't match my skin tone for the last 70 years. But all of a sudden now, because somebody said, you know, the world really has evolved. We need to get Band-Aids so when you're walking down the street, the whole world doesn't know that you got a Band-Aid on. If you're a white person, you don't see the Band-Aid. If you look like me, you got a tan Band-Aid on your hand. Man, what's wrong with your hand? I need a Band-Aid that matches my skin so I don't have to explain myself everywhere I go. They got the point. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And I even like the fact that now they've put out some clear Band-Aids. So no yeah. matter what color you are, it kind of yeah. works. And you, you notice these things, you pay attention if it affects you and you're sitting at the table and you get a chance to help make yeah. that decision. So those are some of the really important pieces of it. So I tell you what, uh, Dr. McMichael, I really want to continue my conversation with you. And I know that we have to wind up for today. So I'm going to ask you to come back for part two. And in part two, I want to say to the audience out there, we're going to dial in some pieces that I really do care about. We're going to talk about Dr. McMichael's learnings from Dr. Martin Luther King, for one thing, and how they may be relevant today. So I would say thank you, Dr. Mickle, for being with me today. And to my audience, join us next time when we continue this conversation of with liberty and justice for all, and what can businesses do today from a practical standpoint to make a difference? You are the instrument of your leadership. And so I invite you to read a complimentary chapter of my book, Lead Yourself First, The Senior Leader's Guide to Engaging Your People for Greater Performance and Impact. And Here's what you'll get from reading the book. You'll get some perspectives on how to leverage your unique gifts and superpowers. Also, how to mine the gold of your past experiences overcoming challenges. And thirdly, you'll be able to identify the continual learning that will catapult you to your next victory. So to read that complimentary chapter, go to my website, www.transleadership.com, scroll down the homepage and click on the button that says, read a chapter. And I look forward to meeting you inside the book. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.